Hello, friends. This is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This podcast is proudly presented by WorkGenius. Are you ready to revolutionize your hiring process? Look no further. Get ready to unlock the world of stressful hiring for your business. With WorkGenius, hiring freelance professionals becomes a breeze. Say goodbye to long and tedious processes. WorkGenius offers you fast and confident hiring, tailored to your unique needs. Whether you need a top talent for short-term projects or a team for long-term collaborations, WorkGenius has you covered. Trust is essential when it comes to hiring. That's why the folks at WorkGenius handpick professionals through a rigorous screening process. They ensure that only the best candidates make it to your doorsteps, ready to hit the ground running and deliver exceptional results. Imagine having the flexibility to bridge gaps during busy periods, add missing expertise to your projects and kick off new initiatives with fresh perspectives. With WorkGenius, it's possible. They provide you with the talent you need precisely when you need it. So why wait? Visit workgenius.com slash alphalist today to access a world of talented engineers who are eager to contribute their skills and expertise to your success. Sign up there, talk to an expert and get matched with your future engineers. Then hire and start working. WorkGenius takes care of the rest. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today with me, we have a great product mind. It's Teresa Torres. Um, I hope I pronounced that name correctly, Teresa. Um, and we're talking about product discovery for CTOs. Um, I remember we had once had Marty Kang here on the podcast telling us about product discovery, and it was like really a mind shift for, for many of us. And Teresa, um, I think... Um, Uh, is 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 heavy on the on the discovery track. Uh, so um, she wrote a book, um, "Continuous Discovery Habits." So that that tells it all, I think. <laughs> And um, yeah, Teresa, you're 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 also teaching people, like a lot of people, um, as far as I, I I've read. So you you taught over twelve thousand people. Is that correct? That is correct. In your very own product talk school, correct? Yep. Great. Um, and uh, I think you're consulting also many companies on the way to product success. So yeah, happy to have you on the, on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. So first of all, maybe let's start a little earlier with your uh, quote-unquote nerd journey. So um, I, I typically have like real nerds here on the show, um, but uh, I, I would consider you maybe a product nerd. Is that correct? Yeah, um, definitely. I, I think that's fair. 
<laughs> okay. So can you can you um, tell us a bit more about your 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 journey as a product nerd? So why are you doing what you're doing? Yeah, I will share. So one of the things that I advocate for is a team-based approach to discovery. So discovery is just the work we're doing when we're deciding what to build. I think historically, it's been the job of the product manager, usually working with stakeholders. What we're seeing is a move to a more cross-functional approach of product managers, designers, and engineers working together to make those decisions. And part of the reason why I'm sharing that as part of my background is I've actually been in all three of those roles. So I started out as a front-end engineer and an interaction designer um, in a hybrid role. And then I moved into a design and product role. And then eventually I moved into leadership roles. Um, and I really empathize with all three roles. Um, I still write code uh, in my own business today. Um, cool. I've outsourced what, 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 what most of the of design. What kind of uh, code? I do a lot in the AWS environment. So a lot of um, step functions, Lambda functions. Uh, to automate my sort of back-end business logic and uh, to automate a lot of the trivial tasks that I don't want to do over and over again. So uh, when it comes to roles, like, do we need so many roles? Or is there maybe like also a slight trend to more generalistic CPTO roles or however you want to call them or CXO roles where... Maybe also with AI being around and like people, more people maybe being able to to code. Do you do you see that, or do you see that like maybe in the in the future? Yeah, so I've always blended roles. Almost every job I've had, I've been in a hybrid role. I think it's actually to collaborate well. We have to um, sort of be T shaped. We can't just go deep in one area without understanding sort of the adjacent responsibilities. So I almost like to think about them as mindsets. So I think we do need a product mindset. We do need a design mindset. We do need an engineering mindset. I don't think that always has to be three people. I think sometimes that could be one person at a small company, right? I think it can be three people. I think as companies grow, it's often three people because uh, each of those mindsets includes a lot of work in each of those sort of roles. Um, but I really encourage teams to look at Regardless of your makeup or what resources are available to you, how do you make sure that you've got the different mindsets covered? It's it's less about how many people are on your team and what roles those people have and more about are you covering the different mindsets. So I think it's important to have a product mindset, a design mindset, and an engineering mindset. Maybe that's three people. As your company grows, it's probably three people. But I think there's lots of situations where it could be one or two people. Mm -hmm. But I think it's key for each team to be really deliberate about How are we covering these mindsets? Yeah, um, I, I, th I think that's correct. And many small companies, like I, I've seen a lot of small companies where I was maybe co-founder and um, there, like the product role is typically covered by by the, one of the founders um, and, and, and uh, really like driven for a long time. Do you think that this can actually be delegated like um, do you see many companies where um, it, it works out that you kind of delegate the vision or part of the vision at a certain point i don't think a founder can delegate the vision but i do think a founder i think the challenge with founder-led product is that a lot of founders not all but a lot of founders start with an idea and then they're so committed to their idea that they 
miss the feedback that suggests there's some flaws in their idea. So I think um, in that context, I don't think a founder is product-led. I think a founder is idea-led, and I think that's really problematic. And that's where I think bringing in an experienced product person and helping to introduce this idea of there is a product process, there is a way to get feedback, reliable feedback, quickly from customers to figure out if what you're building is going to work. Um, but I don't think that means you're giving up your vision, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, if your vision is framed as we're building this specific product, it might mean your vision has to evolve to we're serving this customer and trying to deliver this value proposition to them. And the how is going to change and evolve as we learn what works and what doesn't. Um, I think that's actually one of the hardest transitions for a founder to go through. I think a lot of founders overcommit to their first idea, and then there's these really tough growing pains as they start to let go of that idea and start focusing more on serving the customer. Yeah, and 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 then having that product person that uh, maybe, I don't know, could be annoying at first, right? When you have that idea and you're so tied to it, and then you have someone who always asks the critical questions and, and then maybe even talks to customers to, 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 to validate that like some parts are maybe bullshit. <laughs> so, but, but that's how it goes, right? Yeah. I mean, if you want, here's the thing, like if you really just want to build your idea, no matter what, do it as a hobby, right? Like if you're an engineer and you know how to build things and you really want this thing to be in the world, make it a labor of love. If you want it to be a business and you want to serve customers, you have to build in those feedback loops. You have to be open to feedback that it may not be working. You have to be open to seeing the flaws so you can involve it. Almost every idea starts out as either a bad idea or a mediocre idea. And it's through iteration and feedback loops and um, testing our assumptions that we turn those mediocre ideas into good ideas. So if we're not really willing to do that work or to see those flaws, it's just going to stay a labor of love. And that's fine. I build a lot of things out of a labor of love, but I don't expect them to be viable businesses, and I certainly don't raise venture capital for them. Okay. Well, I guess some founders do, but <laughs> that that's on another page. So, um, like, then you essentially teach people that they have to talk to customers. Is that, like, the first thing you teach, or, like, where do you start typically? Yeah, so um, I titled my book Continuous Discovery Habits because I really look at this as a collection of habits. Um, I think you can actually start with any habit, but the idea, like the benchmark we're aspiring to, is we want to start with an outcome, not a solution. Mm-hmm. So an outcome is what impact is our solution going to have? Um, how might we measure it? What will the world look like uh, if we're successful? And then we want to look at um, what... As we learn about our customers, what are the unmet needs, pain points, and desires that um, we could address that would help us reach that outcome? Okay. So in any space, we can walk through an example. Like, let's say that I want to build a product helping podcasters grow their audience. I don't know what I'm going to build. I just know that's the space I care about, right? I know, Maybe I'm a podcaster. I know how hard it is to grow an audience. I'm sure this relates with, resonates with you, right? So like, I might, I might set an outcome if I want to increase the average audience size of the podcasters that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Okay, on day one, I might be working with zero podcasters, but that outcome is still directionally important. It's telling me what I'm focusing on. It's it's defining the scope of my discovery. It's defining the scope of what I want to do. Now I want to go talk to podcasters and I want to learn about what's easy or hard about growing an audience. What's working today? What's not working? What have they tried? For successful podcasters, What have they done that have worked? And I want to start to surface 
What are those, un where's their friction in this process? Where's those unmet needs, pain points, or desires? I call those opportunities. Because for us builders, there are opportunities to intervene in people's lives, right? And then we need to discover the right solutions. Okay, so we've, we, we know what our outcome is. We know we want to grow average podcast audience sizes. We're starting to uncover needs and pain points. Like, I don't know where to find people. Maybe I don't know where to post my episodes. Um, all sorts of things, right? And now we can start to look at how do we design solutions and match them up to those specific needs. And then there's a lot of iteration with that. We're not going to just come up with an idea and it's going to be perfect right off the top of our head. Usually there's a lot of assumption testing and experimenting and really figuring out what works. So it's not about just talking to customers for the sake of talking to customers. Mm -hmm. It's about building in feedback loops. Mm -hmm. Are we mm -hmm. actually serving them? Are we addressing their needs? And are we designing solutions that's actually going to work for them? And that pretty much sounds like an, like an own organization that you have to install somewhere or like a, like a bigger part of an organization that you have to install, right? Like, Not necessarily. How do you think I run this entire person as a, as a company of one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because um, there are like many directions and many methodologies these days. Um, and whenever I look look into this, and I, I think I think of it as like a part of a small company, the best, like from my perspective, the best setup that I can imagine. And because in many in many like or most small companies, you already start with like a piece of software somehow, and you maybe have some customers, and um, you want to be effective. Um, and and then often it reminds me like this this new part of the organization. It often reminds me of kind of a waterfall, like back in the days uh, when you were doing design and product and and everything like step by step. Um, and and then at a certain point you had that agile group of people that kind of was delivering that, right? Um, and um, what I miss, like looking at it from like a, a top-down perspective is the, 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 the beauty of, of, of a fast and, uh, and small organization. Um, how, how do you think about that? Like um, if, if you would start from scratch or you had like, let's say 10 people um, delivering a product. Um, and by delivering, I really mean business, tech, design, product, like all like going hand in hand. Um, how would you design that? Um, would you say it's like, I don't know, two week sprints and you all work together in a very small team or like, how, how would you, how do you think this can be effective? Yeah, so this is not a hypothetical example for me. I've worked on a 10 person startup team yeah. where We may not have done all of these steps exactly as they were written in the book, but we certainly, like, I talked to customers on a regular basis. I shared what I was learning with our engineers. Sometimes the engineer would join me, kind of depended. I was both the product manager and the designer, so we didn't have a fully resourced trio, but we had the mindsets represented. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we did most of this. And here's the thing, like, it's easy to look at this as, like, This is separate work we have to find time for on top of all the other work we're doing. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. I think this becomes a way you do the work, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, maybe you're not talking to customers and that's an additional thing you need to do, but you don't need to spend a week talking to 20 customers. You literally can talk to a customer every week or two customers every week. And we all have to, I mean, a customer conversation can be 20 to 30 minutes. This mm -hmm. does not have to be a big lift. 
And then on the assumption testing side, as we're iterating and testing our solutions, this could just become part of the way that we build. It's not a separate thing that we're doing. It's the way that we're structuring our delivery work. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that really having a, a mixed team of, of designers, product managers, engineers, etc., that that like you find it rarely, or at least I see it rarely, uh, because in many companies, product and 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 uh, delivery are, are really separate, uh, separate streams, and under under separate leadership. Um, I find though that this could be like really reshaping this in many companies could could help a lot, right? Because you have all those different thoughts that you that you get onto one table um, and 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 discuss, right? Um, and 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 mix. Um, and, and I see that missing out in many companies. Like, how can we fix that? So the first thing I'll say is it's not rare anymore. Uh, we have companies that are still operating under an IT mindset. So an IT mindset is our engineers are order takers. The business knows what's best. We're going to tell our engineers what to build. We're going to create tickets. They're going to service those tickets. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and that our engineers are a cost center. That's a really important part of this, right? So in that environment, if your company has that philosophy and that view of engineering, then you're right. This is really rare. But we're seeing way more companies move to a product mindset where they're starting to look at engineers as value creators, not as a cost center. They're gen generate, they're creating and generating revenue. Um, and we're looking at products as evergreen things that are constantly evolving. And in these types of organizations, usually they're technology first organizations, maybe they're native technology organizations. Although I'll say I work with a lot of old businesses that are becoming product organizations. So it's also not just the Facebooks and the Googles and the Netflix of the world, but it's also the banks and the insurance companies and the healthcare companies and just everyday companies that are moving to a product mindset. And I think for those organizations, This model is not rare anymore. It's becoming mm -hmm. very common. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that means that they also are in one line um, reporting to someone, reporting up to someone? Or is that rather like a matrix organization where like the product team, product people then are, ask the tech people that are maybe then not in a, in a cost center? <laughs> I think it um, depends. I've yeah. seen it work a lot of different ways. I've seen yeah. organizations where they have C-level executives for all three roles. So they have mm -hmm. a CPO, a CTO, and a CDO. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen it work where there's a CTO and um, a CPO and design and product roll up to the CPO. I've seen uh, engineering-focused product leaders where there's a CPO that has all three roles. Honestly, at that level, I don't know that it matters. Mm -hmm. I think what matters is that the organization understands that these three roles need to collaborate from the very top to the very bottom of the organization. And that needs to be reinforced. So sometimes we get that collaboration by having everybody roll up to the same role, but sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes all three roles report to the same leader and there's no collaboration. So I think it's less about org design. I think there are org designs that can better support this, but I think it's less about org design and it's more about the mindset and the philosophy of those leaders. And are they encouraging that collaboration up and down the organization? So um, did you hear about Conway's law? Um, where, yep. and, and, and I think um, there, there's some truth in it that um, in, in many companies that I've seen, 
um, it, it's really true that um, wherever you report to, you also um, like design kind of a service. Um, so your your IT infrastructure and your IT um, architecture really then follows your org architecture, um, and 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 I see this as like kind of one key problem uh, when you want to collaborate and and and. Um, but but maybe it's a it's a it's a question of maturity of the organization, right? Um, I, I'm not sure, but I, I see this as as a problem in, in many companies that you kind of really have a complicated infrastructure because you um, came up with a complicated org chart in the first place. Um, you have many I think different... it's more about how we're setting goals in the organization. Yeah. If the head of engineering, whether it's a CTO or a VP of engineering, has a performance goal. Their goal is improve the performance of the product. And the design has a usability goal. And the product team has a product goal. You're not going to get any collaboration. You're going to have teams sure. moving in three different directions. Sure. And that's true from the very top of the organization all the way down to the very bottom of the organization. Now, if we start to share goals across these roles, we start to get collaboration. So I don't think I think org structure matters absolutely, but I think it's more about. Are we are we creating an environment where collaboration is expected? Are we setting goals where collaboration is expected? And are we propagating that up and down the organization? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that means we all start with a North Star metric, ideally, and um, then set ourselves goals per quarter, um, where we really have like one goal for the whole company, ideally, or um, a goal or same goal for product as for tech, for example, or like, what would you say? I'm less concerned about one goal. Like I like the North Star framework. I think it mm -hmm. does a lot for um, driving focus, but even the North Star framework isn't one goal. Your, your North Star has input metrics, right? Um, what I like to look at is, can we derive our outcomes from our business model? So every product has a business model. We can model out what are the inputs into that business model. What are the variables that increase revenue? How do we look at each of those as an outcome? How are we prioritizing those variables based on what's important right now, based on how many teams we have? And then I want to see each team have their own outcome so that they can own their discovery, they can own their scope. Um, but it's all aligned by starting with that business model. Okay. Understood. Um, and how, how would you, like, if you could give an example for um, a, a company that 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 has that in place, um, how would you cut it for like engineering versus uh, product? Um, like, how would you, how would that look like? Yeah. So let's let's use Netflix as an example. They're a subscription business. Their business model is. Uh, to sell more subscriptions. The inputs to growing revenue for Netflix are going to be things like increase your number of customers, increase their average spend, increase their retention. Each of those I can break down into smaller and smaller metrics. If I look at increasing the number of customers, I can increase the number of visitors to the website. I can increase their conversion rate. If I want to increase average monthly spend, I can increase upsells, right? So I can break each of those down further and further. For a product team, so by that I mean a cross-functional team that's working on one part of the product. So it's usually a product manager, any number of designers, any number of engineers. 
maybe other roles depending on how your team is resourced. I want them to share an outcome. I don't want engineering and design and product to each have their own outcomes. That team has an outcome, and that outcome is laddering up to one of those business model outcomes. So they might, one team might focus on increasing traffic to the website. They might be an SEO team. Another team might focus on increasing upsells, right? So they're working on upgrade pathways through the product. Mm -hmm. Another team might focus on retention. So maybe there's an onboarding team. Maybe there's a content team. Right? So we can divide these outcomes up as many times as we need based on the number of teams that we have. Mm-hmm. But I want the cross-functional team to share an outcome so that they're working together. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, do, do you actually believe in OKRs or similar frameworks? OKRs are just a way of expressing a goal. right? Yeah. So an OKR is, has a qualitative component of an objective and a, and a quantitative component, component of a set of key results. What I like about OKRs is I do think the qualitative um, piece is designed to inspire, should be a big audacious goal that motivates your team. Um, And the other thing I like about it is that we tend to define more than one key result. So there's sort of this acknowledgement that we may not be measuring it correctly. So we're going to take a couple guesses. And as long as we hit one of them, uh, it's success. Now, that's not how a lot of companies use OKRs. Their key results are outputs. They expect the team to hit all of them. I don't think that's the intended design. Um, The intended design of OKRs, I think, is a really nice framework. Is it the only way to express a goal? Definitely not. And I think every company should use what works for them. Okay, thanks a lot. (laughs) And I I think it also really depends on on how you roll it out, right? And uh, how how effective you you really live OKRs. There's no framework on the planet, including my own, that is going to work just straight out of the box, right? These ideas are, it's meant to be scaffolding, right? Here's a big idea. How do I become outcome driven? OKRs can be scaffolding, but they're not going to do all the work for you, right? So it gives you a starting place. And then you have to look at, given our culture, how do we roll this out? How do we support it? How do we hold teams accountable? Um, And it's good scaffolding. It's not the only scaffolding that we have. It's not the. It's not going to solve the problem 100, uh, percent but it gives you a nice starting point. Thanks a lot. Um, from the many companies you've seen, um, what are the most successful ones and why? Like, what are the most or the biggest mistakes that that companies make? Like, um, yeah. How how do you like? How quickly can you see? from like entering an organization um, that, that they are going, doing good stuff or, or not? Yeah, so let's separate two things. I think there's business success and then I think there's uh, success with discovery. Mm-hmm. And there is a correlation there, but I don't, uh, the problem with business success is there's a lot of outside factors, right? There's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of external factors that influence. Um, Zoom was successful before COVID, but COVID was a major external trend had a huge impact on Zoom's success. Now, whether or not they were good at discovery, given that they had a good technical platform, they got lucky by being in that position. Now, they also made their luck, right? They did create um, a video delivery platform that was far better than anything else in the field at the time. Um, so I'm not saying their business culture and their, and their team wasn't responsible for that success they weren't 100% responsible for their success. And that's one of the challenges with business success is we have a lot of factors that are outside of our control. And every startup founder knows that, right? I've been part of startups that had great products and the timing just wasn't right. 
I've been part of startups that had pretty mediocre products and the timing was exactly right, right? So that's the first thing I want to acknowledge on the business success side. If we're looking at discovery success, I think the things that companies do to be successful, to increase their likelihood they can capture business success is um, they're looking at it, at it top down across the organization. Some companies look at it as this is just things my product teams do. They're the ones that have to change and the leaders don't change. The way they measure outcomes doesn't change. The way they compensate performance doesn't change. And you're not really going to get a change if that's the case. Um, so I think the, big mis the biggest mistake I see is that leaders don't look at their own role in the process. They don't get their other executive leaders on board. So maybe the head of product is committed, the head of engineering is committed, but the CEO isn't committed or the head of sales isn't committed. Um, so it does require across the company commitment. Uh, that's really hard to get. I often don't talk about this as what companies are successful, but more of what teams are successful. Because uh, the reality is, is once a company is a certain size, uh, you're not going to see consistency across teams anywhere, even mm -hmm. at the best performing companies. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things I like to communicate is that this stuff is hard. Organizational change is really hard. And I think as individual contributors, what we can do is look at our own habits, look at our own behaviors, our own practices. And I think as leaders, we can look at um, org design, culture, incentives, goal setting. How do we make this as easy as possible for our teams to adopt? And that means you really have to start at the top, typically? Yes and no. Ideally, you're starting at the top because that's where culture is set. That's where accountability is set. That's where strategic context is set. Um, but I've seen a lot of individual contributors have a huge impact on their organization and the way their organization works by just showing that it can work in their organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I don't see successful is when individual co contributors um, fight the ideological war and say we should work this way. It doesn't work. Uh, leaders have gotten to where they are because of the way they've worked has gotten them there. They're not going to change in response to ideological war. They're going to change when they see somebody doing it a better way. Uh, so for individual contributors, I tell them to just start working this way and be a bright spot in their organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a good starting point, I guess. And um, but 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 typically you you consult the whole product org or you really consult like a few ICs in the company and then that sets a spark or like how does it ideally look like? I no longer um, take on consulting engagements, so I focus yeah. full time on our online course business. So my focus is on training cross functional product teams on how to work this way. Okay, so you don't really mind, uh, but uh, you essentially recommend a certain like happy path uh, into the organization or? Yeah, so typically what happens is a head of product or engineering or design will reach out to me and say, hey, we're trying to move our organization in this direction. We need training. Almost always it's framed as our teams need training. That's great for me because that's where I work. But I also like to highlight That's not 100% of the problem, right? Leaders need to change. Most, most leaders that have not worked in an organization that works this way is going to need some coaching. I do have a partner, Hope Gurion, that does leadership coaching. Um, there's a number of other excellent people in the field that we refer people to. Um, there's a lot of work that has to happen at the CEO level if the CEO is not on board. Um, 
It's really easy to say, yes, we want to go in this direction and then not look at the work that has to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so we do uh, try to provide resources, but our focus and our specialty is on training your teams to work this way. Okay. Okay. Understood. And like when you start, like where do you typically start? Like, is that like teaching people how important it is to talk to customers or like giving them the tools at hand or what is like, um, like a good starting point for, for, for you um, in the organization? Um, so again, our model is more course-driven. So we yeah. look at, um, given where the organization is, what's going to be the best courses for their teams. Yeah. So we have a course that introduces them to the entire continuous discovery habits framework. That's really great for teams that uh, are trying to get everybody aligned around the same language, on a vision, for how we're going to work in the future. It's like a very um, like inspirational, motivational introduction to like, hey, there's a new way of working. Uh, the challenge with that class is we cover a lot of ground in a very short period of time, so we're not really building skill in any of the areas. And so we have a set of deep dive courses. Those courses are designed to build skill rapidly. Um, we have one on defining outcomes. We have one on continuous interviewing. We have one on opportunity mapping. We have one on identifying hidden assumptions. And we have one on assumption testing. So where should an organization start? It really depends, right? If they're brand new to OKRs and there's a lot of momentum around that, they might start with defining outcomes to learn about how do I choose the right outcome for my OKRs. If they're really solution-focused, they've never talked to customers, the organization has a 12-month fixed roadmap with delivery dates, and that's where they are, we're probably going to start with identifying assumptions and um, assumption testing because that's going to help you iterate and improve on those solutions. If you're more open to this idea of we need to understand the opportunity space, um, then we're going to start with continuous interviewing and opportunity mapping. But it, it's really designed, you can adopt these habits in any order. It doesn't have to be a linear process of first do this, then do that. Um, I wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to adopt. And they really, teams really can look at that, this in any order. And I think what's good about that is you want to start with the habit that's going to be easiest to adopt given your organizational context. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to end up in that ideological war land, which we don't want to be. We want to avoid that at all costs. Okay, understood. So there's no happy path where like every organization can start with, um, apart from obviously like the CEO understanding uh, what product discovery is, right? Um, there's a lot of happy paths. That's the reality. There's a lot of ways to do this. <laughs> it's a little bit of a choose your own adventure based on where you are. And here's what I'll tell you. Like, let's say that you work in an organization that's very output driven. You're still on an IT model. You have a 12 month roadmap. Your leaders are focused on velocity and output. If I come in and say talk to interviews, talk to talk to customers every week, they're going to say why. All it's going to do is slow you down. That's not the right place to start because your organization isn't ready to talk about opportunities. It's not ready to talk about unmet needs and pain points. It's 100% solution driven. So what we need to do is we need to start with how do we make those solutions better? That's where we're going to look at identifying hidden assumptions. That's where we're going to look at rapid assumption testing. We're going to stay in solution land and introduce you to the solution part of discovery. Now, if your organization is like, look, we get it. We've drank the Kool-Aid. We're done with solution roadmaps. We're now in a now, next, later model. We want to talk to customers more. We want to be, build in faster feedback loops. That's what I'm going to say, great. Let's start with continuous interviewing. Let's start with opportunity mapping. 
But you have to be ready for that, right? I'm not going to force it down your throat. It's not going to work. That's going to put us back in that ideological battle, which we want to avoid. Okay, understood. Um, so, yeah, really, really great um, hearing that from you and uh, kind of not so easy to start with it, apart from like obviously booking your course. <laughs> um, but um, I think um, maybe a good starting point for our listeners is to actually read your book um, as uh, this this might give uh, a good overall um, feeling for for where to start with in in, in each of our organizations, right? Um, yeah, here's yeah. Look, if you're a CTO or a VP engineering and you're hearing about this for the first time, definitely start with the book, right? Like the book is a good overview of all of these habits, the overall framework. I tried to write it in a really pragmatic, actionable way. I hear from teams all the time that said they read the book and they're putting it into practice. Like the courses are not required. Where the courses are helpful is my team's uncomfortable doing this because they've never done it before. Great. Our courses are all hands-on practice-oriented. They create a safe space for people to build skill, right? But everything you need to know but to put the habits into practice, the book is more than enough to get started. Thanks a lot. Um, speaking of the book, um, I, I actually got a little surprise for you. Um, I managed to read like a very first draft of your book and um, it contained a secret chapter called time traveling. Um, and I think you later on removed that. Um, and uh, it actually um, helped me to understand how time traveling worked. And um, Uh, what we can do now as a little exercise, I prepared that beforehand. Um, we can travel back in time to the year 2004 when you worked um, as a product manager at become.com. And you now have the chance to whisper something into young Teresa's ears. What would it be? Uh, interesting question. <laughs> um... That company in particular was interesting. That was actually, um, that's the company where I first learned about product management. The company, had a, that was my second job. That's and the company I, thought, I had yeah. worked at before that did not have product managers. Although looking back, I was in a product manager role even at that company. I just didn't know the title. Um, so Become was where we had a VP of product management. I took a job as a front-end engineer and a designer. By the time I left that company, I was in a designer product management role. Um, it was also a time in my career, I think a lot of us that go through this, where when we're like four to six years into our career, we're starting to feel really ambitious. We want to get promoted sooner than we're probably going to. Uh, blogging was becoming a thing. I feel like um, I was trying to figure out, like, I want to have a voice in this industry. What does that look like? Uh, so honestly, I think what I would tell myself if I could go back in time uh, is just be patient. It all works out. I know that's maybe not so exciting for your listeners. Well, uh, you, you've been patient, right? I mean, um, you're doing it for for for, for ages already. Um, and I guess I'm not sure that I was patient at that time, right? <laughs> I think that's the real. Like, I think, and I get a lot of emails from people at this exact moment. Like, you're four to six years in. You feel like you're starting to get enough experience that maybe you have a point of view, um, but not enough to like really have hardened that point of view. Um, And I feel like, like I often get emails from people of like, hey, I want to start blogging. I don't know if what I have to say is important enough. What do I write about? 
And it's like this like hunger to be a thought leader or to be an expert in something. And I think that like that time period in someone's career is really tough because it's really in like the next segment in most people's career when they're in that like six to 10 years of experience. But when they've worked at three or four companies, when they're starting to pattern match, um, that, that um, you really do start to shape and develop that point of view. Um, and I think there's those years there, like if you're ambitious and um, excited about technology and what you're working on, that's sort of a, it's like the awkward teen years, right? You're not quite there yet, but like you desperately want to be an adult. Um, and so I, I really think like if that's where people are in their career, what's really important is that uh, you just be patient, stick with it, keep chipping away, uh, keep honing your craft. Um, and and I think that's it. It's not just time will pass and you'll suddenly be an expert. It's that keep honing your craft and those years of experience will add up and you will find your perspective. I think for, for technical people, it's quite important to understand that you have those phases in your career, right? Yeah. Um, because you like for for many young engineers especially you have that that phase where you really just want to try out tech stuff uh, which yeah. is not healthy for product organizations i think um so yeah thanks a lot um do you maybe have like free tips for CTOs that maybe see that their company is a bit of a feature factory Yeah, so the first is keep an eye out for an IT mindset. So some organizations want to stay in the IT mindset. That's how they're built. That's what's working for them. That's fine. If, however, you aspire to move to a product mindset, the first tip is keep an eye out for that IT mindset. It's going to show up a lot. It's going to it shows up when we do our annual budgeting and we treat engineering as a cost center. It's going to show up when you fund projects instead of funding teams that are working on iterative products, right? So that's the first thing. I think as a CTO, you have the ability to change that mindset in your organization and to gradually shift from an IT mindset to a product mindset. Um, the second tip I would say is I think you're in a really good position to encourage your, your engineers to get excited about discovery. I will share, I have never met an engineer who didn't have an opinion about what to build, ever, mm -hmm. never once. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I've met a lot of engineers who are reluctant to participate in discovery because we've told engineers for decades now their value is when they write code. And so they're afraid to spend time doing other things. Yep. We need to teach our engineers that they should be part of the discovery process. They should have an opinion about what to build. But that opinion needs to be informed by customer needs and they need to get out and have first contact with customers. Um, And then the third thing that I would say is that I really love it when engineering leaders take responsibility for tech debt and just manage it. It's really hard when um, tech debt gets messed, mixed in with sort of revenue generating development. And these are not always completely separate buckets, but I think a CTO um, should be taking on that burden and helping their teams um, determine, given that we're going to build X, this is the right time to pay down this tech debt. Um, instead of we need to stop everything and pay down tech debt. So I think that's where a CTO can really help product teams um, pay down te tech debt continuously as you're doing those rev revenue generating products. I think that's also where a CTO is really needed, right? Because the rest of the organization typically doesn't necessarily get tech debt and what it means. Absolutely. Right? Um, yeah. 
And the, the second one, your second tip really reminded me of like situations when engineers ask me if, if, if there is a ticket for it. <laughs> like, yeah. can you give me a ticket, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's really horrible. Um, But part of that is because we're measuring their success based on velocity. And if there's no ticket, it doesn't count towards velocity, right? Like there's a reason for this behavior. We're incentivizing that behavior. So we also have to look at what are the systemic things that are in place that are preventing engineers from engaging around discovery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with having an outcome focus, it might become harder to measure what engineers actually did. Um, like looking at velocity and what you just said. Um, is there a way to kind of from your perspective still show up success on the way? Uh, Like as as outcome is complicated, like some somehow show what has been done or I think velocity matters. Velocity yeah. is a metric we should track, but it's a health metric. It's not the outcome. Mm -hmm. Velocity does not create value mm -hmm. at all. Right? We could ship all the wrong, we could build a lot of stuff that's all wrong and have high velocity. We didn't create value for our customer or for our business. The reason why velocity is a health metric is that. Most teams, once they get into their groove, should have a consistent, consistent velocity. And when we see a major dip in velocity, that tells us we have a team problem and we need to go investigate, right? So it's a health metric that we absolutely should measure, but it's not the ultimate thing that matters. What matters is the impact of what we're building. And that's why an outcome focus is, is a big step in the right direction. It's measuring, it should be, if you set a good outcome, it should measure What impact did the things we build have? Okay, makes sense. Do you believe in estimations, by the way? I think when your batch size gets small enough and you become more continuous, estimates are no longer needed. I think before you get there, estimates can be helpful. Uh, but I prefer fuzzy estimates. I prefer like t-shirt sizing. Mm. Uh, not this like really precise story points where a story point represents an hour a time. Represents a day or something, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think the problem with that, anybody who's ever written code, there's too many unknown unknowns. Mm. There's too many things that we can't know until we dive in and start working with the code. And I think that we're often, in a lot of cultures, we're punishing engineers for unknown unknowns that they never could have known about ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I don't think estimates matter. We do need to plan our work. Our organization needs to know what's coming and when. But I think we need to plan um, with acknowledging that uncertainty. Yeah, um, I, I, I like the only thing, um, honestly, like that. What I like about estimates um, is the fact that you you talk about it, right? Um, like when when one engineer estimates, let's say, an XL, and one estimates an M, um, yeah. and then it's like. A starting point to talk about it, right? Uh, and to yeah. refine maybe and reshape. Um, What's typically happening there is they're not aligned on what the solution means. Yeah. They have differing views of what you're building. You definitely want to surface that before you start building. Or one of those engineers has more knowledge about the problem than the other engineer. And you definitely want to surface that and share that. So estimating can be a really good team alignment exercise if you take them seriously and do the work to have those conversations. If the goal is just to put a number or a letter next to a user story, you're probably not getting a lot of value out of that exercise. Or your burned out shots. Yeah. 
<laughs> Thanks a lot, Teresa. It was a great discussion. Uh, really good tips also from you. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, th I think I have to book your course or at least read your book um, very, very soon. Thanks a lot. Um, and uh, hope to see, see you soon again. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Arcelist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.